0: Hello friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Friends, as you may have heard, I am currently kickstarting my two-player game of Forbidden Romance. That's right, Starcrossed. We funded in one hour and 38 minutes, and that is bonkers to me. Thank you so much to everyone who has supported us so far. If you haven't checked out the Kickstarter yet, please do just go to Kickstarter and search Starcrossed. And if you have already supported, please consider sharing either on social media or sending it to a friend who might be interested. This game has played incredibly well, not just with RPG aficionados, but with people who are completely new to role playing. In fact, that's one of my favorite things about it. Again, thank you, and I will keep you updated. And we will have a few surprises in the feed, actually, over the course of the campaign. It ends May 10th, so. this amazing game while you can now my guest today is john harper and i am delighted to have him on the show you are probably familiar with the wildly successful blades in the dark or maybe one of the many forged in the dark spin-offs that are happening now blades is an intricate elaborate system kind of an interesting contrast to a lot of john's earlier work like lady blackbird which was one of my first rpgs which had a much more minimalist approach to rules John and I talk about this, as well as his long and interesting history with indie RPG publishing. And uh, why don't we just jump right into it? <coughs> What I just learned about which is the first official Blades in the Dark novel.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, totally.
0: How, so what's how did that happen? Did someone just approach you or like what what's the deal there?
1: There's a there's like a long version of the story which probably would just eat up too much of our time here, but the the shorter version is uh, Andrew Shields, who's who's the author, was part of the Blades in the Dark playtest from basically from the Kickstarter, like immediately. And he became one of the first kind of fans, I guess you could say, that outside the local playtest groups and stuff. And he joined the Google group immediately and started creating cool adventure hooks. And he wrote all these blog posts about different aspects of the setting of Blades. And uh, they were really cool and and flavorful. And as I was getting into finishing the book, there were these spaces for kind of in-world fiction pieces, like a report written by a supernatural investigator or a, uh, imperial surveyor writing about the food supplies in the city and how they, you know, how they grew their food and stuff like that. Uh, just little, little snippets of, of fiction like that. And he had a really good voice in his blog posts. So I asked him to write those and, and he did. Uh, so you can see those in the blades book. There's like a, what is there to eat in Duskwall" section. And there's another one about electroplasmic energy and the, what the scholars think it is and that, that sort of thing. Um, and I was really blown away by those. They're, they're great. So as part of the Kickstarter, I had, um, arranged for a novel, uh, set in the world of blades. And for various reasons, the initial writer that uh, was going to work on that kind of fell through and, Andrew stepped up and said, Hey, I, I love writing fiction and I've published fiction before. And this is kind of my thing. Um, let me take a crack at it. So, so he did. And he's been working diligently like an amazing way. Um, like clockwork, uh, it's kind of been, it's, it's been this cool process because it's like fulfilling the, the thing for the backers to get this, this novel. It's a thing that he wants to do anyway, um, as a writer and to kind of like get his work to a larger audience. But he also was able to start this Patreon to do it because the book is sort of serial-ish, like each chapter kind of is its little story arc with a cliffhanger-ish ending. Uh, so he's been able to publish it almost as an old uh, kind of monthly pulp serial as well. So that's been it's been good for everyone, I think. I know Andrew's happy with it. I'm very happy with it. The the book is great. There's always a bit of trepidation there, you know, <laughs> when you. Uh, when you are handing over the reins of, of, a, of a setting you've created, but it's, I really love it. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been handing over the reins from like the get-go. Like, I mean, everyone knows that Blade's development has been like super public and super community focused. And now it's, it's actually to the point where I really wonder like, how do you keep up with that community do, or do you try?
1: I try. It's tricky. At first, it was very focused. The G plus group was kind of where everything happened, uh, and it wasn't huge initially, so it was easy to kind of read everything every day, reply to everything. I'm very social media focused. Like I like to really be very active on Twitter, especially, and answer people's questions or comments, or you know, just sort of be available in that space. But as the Google group grew, I think we're we're about to hit twenty two thousand or something like that. I forget what it is. It's a lot. It's a big number. <laughs> it's crazy. And then someone started a Reddit, subreddit for Blades as well. So there's kind of two, two spaces now where that's happening um, that I know of. I mean, that I, there could be more, I don't know. But it it's hard. It's hard to keep up, but I do make a diligent effort. I kind of treat it as part of my job. You know, my, my job is making games, but also um being available as a designer to the community and growing that community. And then as we develop this further with Evil Hat, decide to do this SRD, um, the system reference document. Um, which is like the blades, just the mechanics sort of stripped down. Evil Hat is done with Fate as well. Uh, We decided to have that available on the web and then have a license for it so people could build their own games out of that backbone, um, kind of like the Power by the Apocalypse sort of method. And so that's created this other community aspect where there's a kind of designer space as well. Uh, There's the players and fans of the game, and now there's a kind of design community that's that's growing up out of that. And a lot of those people are making their very first role playing game as part of that forged in the dark (laughs) design thing that we've called it. And it's really exciting. I mean, that's, that's awesome to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, how does that feel to get to be a part of that process and like have access to those people who are doing that like first role playing game thing, which, yeah. How does that feel?
1: It feels amazing. I, that, that's what happened to me. I, I was very lucky to get involved in, in the sort of indie design RPG design space when it was very small and I met some wonderful people that were willing to mentor me and so I feel like I kind of want to give back you know and do the same thing but it's hard just on the in the general space of the indie RPG community on the internet that's a big space to try to wrap your arms around so having this Forge in the Dark community sort of curating down a, a select group of designers um, has made it a lot easier for me to focus on mentorship, uh, with, with only like, you know, six or so people, uh, as opposed to everybody. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and, and then there's these secondary effects, you know, uh, uh, Strosch, uh who uh, I'm, I'm guessing you probably know, um, is, uh, is making two, well, probably in a, maybe more like three blades hack games, uh, scum and villainy and band of blades and then throne of the void somewhere down the road. But when he first started, as a game designer, you know, he had a lot of experience for, as a play tester and he was the consulting designer on on Blades in the Dark, uh but he's he said, you know, I want to get I want to take that next step. I want to learn InDesign, I want to learn Photoshop, I want to learn Illustrator, I want to lay out my stuff. I want to learn how to do marketing and social media and da 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 da. So, we have been going on that journey for a couple of years now and sure enough, you know, he's dedicated himself, he's learned the software, he's learned how to design, he's learned principles of visual design, and has just really blossomed as this, this visual layout person, which you didn't have those skills before. And now, now he does. And now he's mentoring new people in, you know, how to use those pieces of software, how to think about layout and typography and stuff. So there's this like, knock on effect of, <laughs> of that mentorship growing outward. And that, to me, in some ways, that's the most valuable piece of my work, you know, like, making games is obviously core uh, to what I do. But facilitating other people to make stuff is kind of what game design is anyway. So um, I feel like it's an outgrowth of that, that instinct. It feels great to see it happening.
0: That's, that's interesting. The fact that design is teaching inherently, right, like a design document is a teaching document. How, How do you think that we can build more opportunities for mentorship, like among designers?
1: That's a good question. I think it needs to start from the designers being willing to make themselves available. That might just mean to your friend in your playtest group who has supported you through the whole process. Uh, My friend Dylan Green was a key playtester for Blades in the Dark and he made that game way better uh, by being a playtester. And so when he wanted to work on a game and design something, it was easy for me to say, yeah, of course I'll help you. Uh, you know, it was a very one-to-one kind of relationship or friends. He supported me, I'm supporting him. That's a very personal connection. Uh, and I think that's an easy and good place to start in, in your own, your local circle or a uh, friend group or whatever it is. There's always some opportunity for that type of mentorship, doing it out in the open on the internet. I think it's easy to overpromise or go too far. You know, like if you're very excited about it, it's easy to stretch yourself very thin. I think I remember when Vincent's uh, Apocalypse World forum on the Forge was very active, and it was just m- tons and tons of posts, and he was very active uh, talking to everybody, um, and that you know created a lot of cool games and a lot of new designers that came out of that too. But you know, you you can kind of be a victim of popularity sometimes. There's a that space grows really fast, so.
0: I was going to say if it if it becomes unsustainable.
1: Yeah, yeah, cuz it 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 is a commitment, you know. I think it's good to be honest to say like, "Yes, I like I want to support you, but here's honestly what I'm able to do right now." You know, I can't necessarily shepherd the project from A to B. I'm already doing that with these other things, but come back to me when you have a finished draft and I'll be happy to, you know, read through it or when you're setting up your Kickstarter, let me know and I'll talk to you about it or help promote it or Um, Even if it's just retweeting the thing like right now, Fraser, Fraser Simons is his blades based game hack the planet is on Kickstarter, and it kind of came out of nowhere. He hadn't really told any of us in the little blades group uh, that he was working on that until it was basically done. So, you know, he, he, he doesn't need that kind of support. He's a, he's designed all kinds of stuff. He's very talented. And that wasn't the type of support he was looking for. But when it came time to do the Kickstarter, you know, that's an easy way to help out uh, just with promotion or um, something as simple as retweeting, talking about it, playing it, that, that sort of thing. So I think, I think that's a good way to go is to be very honest about your own time and availability and really focus on the balance of, you know, what you're focusing on, how much time you're spending, how e- uh, it is hard to talk about. Cause
0: yeah, I was going to say, this really sounds like like really personal lessons. I have to say, <laughs> yeah,
1: it is. It's like, there's not one right way to do it. I, I think the main, I, would stick to that main pitfall that, that, that kind of like general goodwill can be a problem if you don't self-assess and really think about what you're, what you're promising. And that, that goes to mentorship, but also to just general friendship or social interactions of all kinds and social media stuff too. You know, I, like I said, I try to make myself very available to people who want to talk to me on Twitter or whatever, that that's a kind of blanket statement that isn't perfectly true, right? There's a kind of, there's a spectrum of how I engage from like, just clicking a like on someone's tweet to like having a multi multi day threaded back and forth with them to ignoring someone who's being a dick or whatever. It's that whole range of things, right? And finding that space of being supportive, being available, but not letting it take over being very intentional about your choices. Um, I think that's something everyone has to navigate uh, just in general in life. But um, when it comes to helping other people, I think that we have this instinct as creators and and role players, especially with such a collaborative hobby that are, I think often we, our instinct is to jump in, support, say yes, help, promise things, you know, to all, overcommit, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's important, important to have balance, protect your time, protect your, your own creative space. Don't, don't give it all away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to, um, to really give in to what other people are working on and to be like excited about what other people are working on and being involved in it. And then you're like, Oh yeah, those things that I want to do. Oops. Oops. <laughs> yep.
1: <laughs> yep. Exactly.
0: Oh no. <laughs>
1: exactly. But that's good. Uh, it's, I I'm I'm sort of couching it as the, as a problem, but but really the, the that's not how it feels. It feels wonderful to see these games flourish and designers flourish and the community to grow more diverse and and broader than it was, kind of growing outside the bounds that it had been stuck in for a while. All of that is really great.
0: Yeah, well, I I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, like you've been doing this stuff for a while. Not like a real world while, but like an RPG world long time. <laughs> Like, your oldest publishing credit is, like, 2001? Uh, that's, like, a million RPG years. My very first credit.
1: Well, I know. I, I, it's worse than that. My very first credit is, was from 1994, I think.
0: Was that for Talis-Lanta? Uh
1: That was Blue Planet.
0: Oh, Blue Planet. How exciting.
1: Yeah, I, I did some writing on Blue Planet. Yeah. It, so, yeah, it, it's, it hasn't been, like, I guess that is kind of a long time, but.
0: Not r- real world long time. Just not, Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. RPG world an in infinite <laughs> amount of time. I mean, when you think about like what the design and publishing landscape looked like then versus how it does now, what are the changes that you see?
1: Well, it, yeah, there's so many, there's probably a, a couple of major pillars there though. The digital distribution obviously is the big one that changed everything for the better. And uh, as soon as it was even remotely possible, these mini revolutions started. I never know who to credit exactly because it's a little fuzzy but I I do distinctly remember John Tynes and Jared Sorensen's websites back then giving away. John had Puppetland on his site and Jared had uh, I forget what it was, Pumpkin Town or something like that. And I remember finding them and just having this moment of oh right, you can just put your game on your website (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: um, and this was before pdf really it was a thing and it was just a web page you know like the game was there and john in particular had had these sort of cool designs um that that was back when the web was still fairly new and the idea of having I, like i would
0: love to see that oh my god I would love <laughs> to see that, like, early internet looking thing yeah you, you
1: can, can if you want uh, our, on archive.org you can go back and look at our, all of the old <laughs> versions of our websites they're kind of hilarious but at the time, it was just really cool and, and eye-opening. So my design partner back then, we designed a game and released it on our as a web thing. We, we had like a web business. We, we did web design professionally back then. And, and so we were like, yeah, this will be great. We'll, we'll write our games and we'll create these cool sites with animated graphics and stuff. And they'll be really great. So that started to change things. But then I think I, for me, it was probably Ron Edwards doing Sorcerer like shareware. He would send you the text file, uh, and if you liked it, you could mail him uh, $5 or whatever in the mail.
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's uh, so
1: cool. Yeah, yeah. Super primitive, but it actually worked, and he collected enough $5 bills from people to print, you know, to pay a printer and print the book and take it to Gen Con and, you know, sell, sell the book. And by the time I got involved, it was, it was probably 99 uh, ish maybe things were already a little bit underway. And that second wave of people had come in Clinton Nixon and, and Matt Wilson and, um, Paul I was doing, uh, my life with master and that stuff. And it was like the, the doors had been open to being an independent game designer. Like you didn't need to try to work for D and or white wolf or whatever. If you had a cool game idea, you could, you could make it. But the mentality still at that time was, you know, you needed to print some books, even if it were kind of like just a few, sell them or bring them to Gen Con or whatever. Luke Crane had some crazy idea back then of filling a U-Haul trailer with Burning Wheel books and driving them around to game stores and like <laughs> selling them on commission or something. <laughs> um, which he, I don't think he ever did. Uh, it's apocryphal. But there was a plan in the works at some point to do that. And then everything changed. Everything changed when viable di- digital distribution came in and you could it was, you could have a essentially zero cost publishing system. So that, that was the first big revolution. And then I feel like it's taken a really long time for the second big one, uh, the one the way I see it anyway, which is the population making the games, like who, who those people are and the lack of diversity of that group, for lack of a better word. Um, the diversification of that group has taken a long time I I wouldn't necessarily speculate about all the reasons there, but.
0: Well, a lot of it just is the material consequence of when things are more accessible, people with less social power get to have them, right?
1: Totally. Yes. That's an excellent point. I'm sure that's a huge factor. I think what I'm seeing now, or I feel like I'm seeing now anyway, is I don't have data or anything, but there seems to be maybe a second wave of that where like people who weren't necessarily part of that group have gotten into that group and we've already seen a sort of a flourishing of games from that more diverse scene. And I think that has had this secondary effect of what I'm seeing now. Is like, it feels like the population, at least in the indie part of gaming, which is the only thing I really track very closely, but it feels like the audience for that, the players, the game masters, the designers has just become much more of a diverse space than it was. Um, even like 5 years ago. And maybe that's also partially due to the overall increase in popularity of RPGs in general. That that has probably helped to some degree stuff like Critical Role and stuff, you know, really like affecting the people outside the gaming space, drawing in new new players and things. But yeah, I it it feels kind of like that. It feels kind of like the digital sea change. It feels like there's a broadening of the space change happening now. Uh, and in terms of who's making the games and also what they're about, the move, moving outside the just pure adventure gaming space, it's exciting to, to see. I, I love it. It's it feel, almost like every day on Twitter, I see a tweet or a link to something that is a totally new idea in, in RPGs by someone who I've never heard of before. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Uh,
0: it's it's dizzying, right? To just to know that you cannot keep up with everything. There is no way.
1: Yeah, I posted. Uh, I did this Twitter thread of like recommended RPGs. There was kind of this. I don't. I forget what started it, but there was a little bit of a spotlight. I felt this moment where I was like, oh, people are paying attention to my Twitter right now. Let, I'll use it for something. And I, I always have this kind of like old man kind of thing going on. Like, ah, you guys didn't. You haven't played the classics, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the
0: classics are like 10 years old. Max. Yeah, right.
1: So, yeah, the classic indie <laughs> games from from 2001. But it's true, like e- even like mo- most of my like local design community, the face to face meetup people, you know, they're they're 19, 20, 25 ish in that range. So it's it's new to them. And I was like, I'm going to use this spotlight. I'm going to recommend all these games. And I, I linked to like my database where I like keep track of all the games, all the RPGs I've played and stuff. And a few people were kind of agog. They were like, "How did yo? You know, how have you played so many games? Like, I could never do that." And I'm like, "Yeah, I, now you can't. Now you can't keep up." But there, there was a time when you could play every every role playing game that existed. <laughs> <laughs> like you, it was possible to have caught up. You, you like we we did it, and then that year at the Forge booth, like. There were eight or 10 new ones and we played all of those and like, okay, now we're, we're, we're still current.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but that's long gone. It's long. It's, and it's great that it's gone.
0: That's exciting. Is there something new or in progress that you're like really excited about right now?
1: So I feel like I should plug the Forge in the Dark games since um, that's, that's in my wheelhouse. Uh, and there are several that I'm really excited about. One is called Misbehavin, which is uh, by Mad Piro, Ali, Ali Bustian. It's a prohibition era game, plus a little bit of a little magic, just like a light, light sprinkling of magic. And it's an interesting take. It takes the the blades idea, the sort of crew concept and the the criminal component and uses it to tell stories from the point of view, which core Blade sort of does this, too. But in a fantasy world that does it in the real world to tell stories of the disenfranchised and and the, the crew being more of a a space to to build a community and help people as as opposed to just sort of becoming personally uh, better off you know that it it focuses more on this idea of using what you're doing which in this case is illegal you're running running illegal booze or whatever you're doing but you're using those resources then to sort of give back and help other people who are in need it's a really great way to approach that very smart bit of design and the setting is just cool it has this like louisiana southern prohibition era vibe going on in the language of the game and in the presentation of it i really like it a lot and there's another one that's kind of doing something interesting with the uh with the sort of politics of of blades it's called mutants in the night by david collins and it's um man it's it's hard to like pigeonhole this one but it it's cyber punky in its aesthetic a little bit, but with the mutant versus non-mutant kind of idea, it's allegorical for like the X-Men do, you know, the, the sort of marginalized people that are, some of them can pass and some of them can't and how they fit into a society that doesn't necessarily want them or how they don't fit in and they're outcasts. And so that, that, that's a cool way to take the structure of the sort of underdog story or marginalized story that, that is, Blades generally does, and make it a little more real. It's similar to Misbehavin, and I think it. I think it's telling that both Misbehavin and Mutants in the Night are their designers are people of color, and so they're to some degree like it's a, it's a lived experience in a way that I didn't have when I wrote Blades. Right, I I can write about stuff from the criminality angle, which is something I'm I care about, but I, I I'm not the other in my own culture the way that uh, I haven't been treated that way. You know, personally, it's cool that people who have lived those experiences are finding a way to use those tools to tell those stories and to bring them more to the forefront. And both both of these are looking really cool. They're both in beta right now. And then the third one uh, is Girl by Moonlight uh, by Andrew Gillis.
0: Right. Yeah. Magical Girl Blades. Yeah.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, I've, I've become friends with Andrew over the last couple of years, and uh, they're just a, a wonderful person. But at first, I thought that like, oh, this is cool because it's there's this funny juxtaposition, right? When you hear about, oh, it's Blades in the Dark, but it's Sailor Moon. Like, oh, that's, ha ha ha. It's-
0: But then. (laughs) Yeah, but then, exactly.
1: (laughs) In play, it's totally fun and great. uh, And who doesn't love magical girls anyway? But it also is about gender in this really cool way that is, it's not um, heavy handed or awkward. It doesn't feel like a screed or a lecture. It's subtle and emergent and- just wonderful. There's so many good things going on in that game. But first and foremost, it's really fun to (laughs) transform into your magical girl self and fight the shadow and and be badass and cool. So yeah, I'm thrilled with that game. I, I at first expected not to really care about it. And then I played it and fell in love. And the more I've played it, and the more I've read it, the deeper, more interesting it is. So kudos, kudos, Andrew, that game is super cool. And I think all three of these are are well on the way. There, There are a lot of uh, other sort of forge in the dark things that are in various stages of completion uh, that we could talk about, but these are I think there's like I don't know there's over twenty now.
0: Like we were just saying that at one time you could play everything, and now you can't even play everything that is based on the game that you made. <laughs> I know,
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> It kind of kills me too. I, I, I mean I, that goes back to that overpromising thing. Like when we first were announcing these hacks, Strash and Dylan uh, and Andrew were already working on their things, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to play these, you know, and then. Like misbehaving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh huh. I'll, 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 I'll keep up. I'll, I'll be playing all these can now. I can't even do that. Yep. <laughs> <There>. <laughs> like I was saying before, I think that part of the, for me anyway, like one of the core things about role playing as a hobby is the fun of bringing my own creativity to a group and then listening to their thing and then watching them take my thing and build on that and me take their thing and build on that and around and around it goes. And it's this, process of discovery and surprise. We can't possibly know where it's gonna go, but we're all kind of at the wheel together with it it's that whole thing, that like wonderful creative collaboration. And this feels like that. It gives me similar feels, the correspondences back and forth of someone taking my work and sort of reflecting it back in a different way. And Someone else who's a third party to that, seeing that and having their own reaction to it and doing their own thing with it, and so on and so on, and it has that has that vibe of what it feels like to me at the game table of that living conversation of of creative process, you know.
0: And you know, you talk about discovery and uh, you know finding things out, and that's one of the things that interests me in Blades is. You know, beneath the mechanics, you have certain principles that are explicit, and interwoven into almost all those principles is a principle of like a this underlying thing of curiosity, and like that is behind everything, right? Like, don't tell people what they're doing; ask them what they're doing. Don't you know, uh, rush over this? uh, You know, talk about talk it through, and um, just ask, ask, ask. And is that something that you? Found was missing from games that you were playing, or something that you were just like, "I have to make this explicit," or like, "What what motivates you to talk about curiosity that much?"
1: I think it was it's a combination of things. Uh, there's always that 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 motivator f- that comes from a place of frustration, right? I, I think a lot of creative work has some kernel of feeling stymied. By something or, or seeing another work and going, ah, that's not how you do that. This is how you do that, you know, and feeling like you want to fix something or innovate or or being stuck in a frustrating space and not wanting to go back there again. Or so there's that kind of negative impulse, and I think I can definitely you know call out some experiences from my own life as as a gamer where I felt like I wasn't being asked, and I and the and the particularly the GM wasn't being curious, uh, and it was frustrating. Um, but I think. More than that, uh, even though that's part of it, I feel like it's more of a trying to distill best practices over these past 15 years or so, uh, maybe a little more of the indie game thing uh, from Sorcerer and Troll Babe to Shadow of Yesterday and uh, Time Adventures, Dogs in the Vineyard, up through Apocalypse World and all that stuff. The kind of growth of this body of technique and all those games are different and they're played in different ways, but they sort of share some, of uh, some common traits. Um, and I think apocalypse world in particular was very good at getting more, way more explicit about what those things are and coming out and saying them, uh, burning wheel also kind of does that. So I felt like I needed to kick, keep carrying that torch, you know, um, to not just provide a game, but also provide the context for it, the best practices, the sort of accumulated wisdom from playing a lot of stuff for a long time and being embedded in this community and listening to other people's perspectives. And and like I was saying before, my friend Dylan Green, who's the playtester tester in Blades, he was very, very good about sort of observing us as a game group from from this objective external viewpoint. And we would do things in play that felt very natural to us as players and people who'd played a lot of these games and internalized a lot of stuff. And he was the one who was really good at saying, OK, I, I here's the thing I've noticed that we always do here's a here's a procedure that I've noticed that what really works for us let's be explicit about it let's let's write it down let's capture that um, and not just let it disappear into the uh, oral tradition side of gaming so a lot of the blades development was playing trying to bring those best practices into the into play and then trying to be very objective and capture them and then having this big body of stuff sorting through it and going, okay, what's relevant? What's not? How should we talk about this thing? What should be in the book? What should not be in the book? What's emergent and what's explicit and so on and so forth. But at the core of all of that sifting was this notion of tearing down the status problems at the table, particularly the high status GM problem as a, as a key, as a tent pole thing for blades in the dark was to, to really just level that playing field as much as we possibly could. And maybe even go a little too far uh, because people, even with the best intentions, are still going to have some sense of status stuff happening around the GM usually. So we really just kept hitting, pounding the nail. <laughs> and I, I think that it stands out. I think that's one of the things that people always talk about with blades, that it's weird uh, in that particular way that, that the authority stuff among the people at the table is very um,
0: flat, which which is um, it's a gamble right to have a, a GM role that is very different from everyone at the table. Like it's a it's a very distinctive role. It doesn't feel like a GMless game, but without bringing some of the baggage and maybe hoping to avoid some of the problems. So so much in Blades is like very, very like practical problem solving oriented. Like Here's how we're gonna make it like uh, you know here's how we're gonna make it so that like a bunch of weird teamwork stuff is just like uh, resolved, and you can do everything together. like here's how we're gonna make it okay if not everyone can be there on next Wednesday. <laughs> uh, do, yeah. are, are there are there still kind of like typical game problems that you are excited to approach in something?
1: Oh sure, yeah there's still there's still a lot of stuff out there to deal with as a designer. And Blades is a blunt, very, like you were saying, it is a very blunt instrument. It it solves these problems by just either deleting them from the game or giving you this very obvious button to press. And that's not necessarily the right call for all types of design. And there, there are other types of designs I want to do that will depend more on some subtlety or emergent properties but, and stuff like that, which I'm very excited to get into at some point. But for this game, it was very necessary, I feel, to be very blunt and direct and make those tools as obvious as possible. Because I feel like in the development, we knew that this game was going to be people were going to want to hack it and make stuff out of it. So I decided, well, let's just let's make this as skeletal as possible. I want people to be able to see the gears uh, and the levers and really see what like this happens in play because you did this thing that's in the system. And let other people, if they want to cover those things a bit and hide them or be subtle or whatever. But I felt like the, the core game needed to be as blunt and obvious as possible to facilitate that hacking space. But yeah, it is, it, it, it has, it's sort of created a different, a different, problem, not a problem exactly, but a challenge. I think I sort of anticipated it and there's a sort, sort of long section in the book about this, but when you flatten out that, that authority stuff in a way you could look at it as bringing the GM down from their high status p- position but you can also look at it as lifting the players up and in that model they are now responsible for a lot more it's it's their responsibility what happens in the in the session tonight the way that you used to sort of be able to go well i'm not running the game so whatever i'll just show up and play and so it's someone else's problem <laughs> um and ladies like well you can't really you can't do that. There's like, you, there's kind of nowhere for you to hide. You have to. You're responsible for how the session goes tonight, and the other player is too, and the other player is too, and the GM is too, and we all are together. So that's been another learning process in the community of people playing the game. Is GMs kind of, I think GMs learning to let go has been easier. Um, I think a lot of GMs want to let go.
0: Oh, well, yeah, it's a lot of work.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They want, to, they want to let go of that responsibility and let go of the prep time and all that stuff is fine. But watching the player group go from the very, very early reactions to the game around the Kickstarter of like, this will never work. Players don't want to do that. That kind of very conservative analysis. Uh, this, this will never work. And now there's this second and third wave of reaction where when someone new comes in and is like, I don't know if this is going to work. Like the second wave of players are all going, ah, no, it's fine. Here's how it works. Da, 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 da. You, you can do this This is a fun way to be a player, but it's, it's asking a lot. It's, it is asking a lot of, of players and it's not what everyone wants either. That's the other tricky bit. When I write stuff like this, that's particular for this game, and then have kind of like essays in the book about it, it can read to some people as a manifesto for gaming, you know, this is how it should be. And it's really just saying this is how you play this game. it's not universally wanted, you know, some people just want to show up for game night and not think too much and not have all that responsibility. And that's, that's not bad or wrong or or inappropriate. It is if you're playing blades in the dark, uh, and it's going to make the game fall apart. But, uh, I think, you know, there's that thing that where you, you get super excited about a new thing and you bring it to your group, like we're all going to play this. And then everyone goes, okay, cool. And it's not a good fit. It's not what people actually want. And there's, there's friction and difficulty and you're, someone is going, come on, you're supposed to be doing the thing. Why aren't you, <laughs> why aren't you doing what it says in the book to be respond? And they're like, well, we, oh, didn't no. really, <laughs> we really want this. Yeah. But o- overall, I'm very happy with the way that's worked out. It's been fun to see that somewhat risky proposition of the really putting the the success of the campaign so to speak in the hands of the players very very explicitly very fully to the point where if you have a boring knight of blades it's the player's fault not the gms um it's it's weird it's a strange 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 thing for most rpgs um it, coming from the traditional space right the all the gm players of the players and stuff i don't think that's weird at all but
0: yeah they're just like okay yep this this makes sense yeah
1: <laughs> it's not it's not innovative it's just it being exposed to a group of players that maybe hadn't seen it before. Uh, it's for, for, for them. It's new and different and they have to adjust to it.
0: And that's what happens when you have something that's much more popular than you expect it to be, too, is that it ends up getting to some audience whose expectations are different than yours or different than your intended audiences. And then you have to manage that because of online.
1: And, and you have to make those choices, you know, and I think they're important choices to make. Do you design for your audience or do you design the game that you wanted to make? They have to walk that tightrope. And for me, I've I've always just designed the game I wanted to make, but I don't think there's a right or wrong choice there. I think every designer makes their own call on where they draw that line.
0: Blades has been like kind of a really, really, really big part of your life for like five years at least, presumably more. Have you, do you ever get those moments where you're just like, screw this, I hate this? (laughs) (laughs) Like, have you had, you can, like, you could say, you could say.
1: No. Well, yes, but not not with this project. Um, no, no, yeah i I have in my career as, as an artist and as a game designer, definitely, definitely, have had those times, particularly doing graphic design for clients. Uh, oh yeah, no, that's that's <laughs> um, just
0: that that's a different gear. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. But no, yeah, with Blades, I never, I never got to a point where I hated it or had that like that creator thing where you you don't want to look at your own work anymore. And you're just like,
0: I'm,
1: I'm over this. Like I, I didn't have that with play. Like, I did have the stress and exhaustion at our at 11 phases where I just was working nonstop. Praise Sean Nittner and Karen Twelves.
0: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Seconded.
1: Yeah, they're amazing. And without them, I don't even know what I would have done. But that, that was when I was hitting that really hard, grindy feeling. But I never... I never fell out of love with the thing. And that is a real danger. It's it's tough. Most of my design cycles before Blades were much, much shorter. And I dodged that bullet a little bit because Lady Blackbird took like five hours to put together, you know, there's no, there's no space in there to like be over it and hate it, you know? So... Yeah, that was definitely a danger with this, but it hasn't happened. I'm I'm still really happy with it and I still like to play it and run it. I don't know. I'm I'm hoping it never hits. But <laughs> that's so
0: beautiful. Is there is there a secret to that or is it just your your heart song? This is just your your special <laughs> forever project.
1: <laughs> oh god, no, not my forever project. Uh, <laughs> but it's very lucky that the thing that I haven't gotten sick of and still really enjoy also was successful and has justified my attention to it. You know, if blades had not made any money and I had to go back and get a job again or like, you know, launch the next game or whatever, that would have been fine, but that they wouldn't have matched up quite the same way. Or if blades had done super well and I was over it and tired of it and that would be a bad fit too. So I am lucky and I don't think I did anything necessarily to cause those two things to occur simultaneously. They just did. And that's, that's wonderful. I feel super lucky that that's happening that way.
0: You mentioned Lady Blackbird, which is one of my favorite RPGs ever. One of my first actually. And it just makes me think about like thinking about Lady Blackbird, the Mustang, Lasers and Feelings, like pretty much everything except for like almost everything except for Blades in the Dark. Has this unifying principle of like simplicity and like directness and you know small games that are one shots and about this one particular thing um, that you were kind of known for up until Blades and I'm I guess I just wonder what brought about this departure like were you were you always kind of planning to hopefully make a bigger project one day or was there just something about this idea that demanded that level of complexity?
1: I generally follow my design impulses uh, at least down the road far enough to kind of see the shape of what something might be before it's abandoned or or committed to without a lot of pre-planning just to sort of play around experiment fill up notebooks push out into some design space and see where it goes and for the most part w- when i was working full time those designs the time i had to do to work on those kinds of things was necessarily smaller and you know, over time in the creative field, especially like you train your mind to like subconsciously be aware of this, of the scope. When a project comes in, like you kind of know like, okay, this needs to be delivered in six weeks. It's going to be for this much money. It's going to have this kind of audience. Like even when you're doing your initial blue sky phase thinking, you're not really thinking of any, any solutions. You're already kind of like imagining something that's going to fit the space. Um, At least over time, I think you develop that instinct and learn how to sort of hedge your bets and cut your losses and, and build the thing that is actually going to get made and get paid, go move on to the next thing. Uh, and so I think back then, because my time is limited and scope was limited, my brain was naturally thinking as a game designer to fill that smaller space. What can I do in an afternoon or in a few evenings of work or that kind of thing? I think that was probably a big factor, but the other factor that sort of moved away from that into this bigger project was that my game group's themselves, my face-to-face groups. We didn't play like we we played Lady Blackbird that night that I wrote it after work <laughs> um, and a couple other times. And we, we played some other of smaller games, but in general, those game groups were all big, sprawling long, year-long plus campaigns, huge sandboxy things. Uh, Stars Without Number, we played what like a hundred sessions, Apocalypse World, like hundred sessions of, of you know, linked together campaigns of various stories and things. But it was always this bigger Thing. That's what my face-to-face gaming was really like. It wasn't uh, a lot of one-shots or anything like that. So two things kind of came together, which was me uh, reducing my work hours and deciding, I, okay, I want to focus on game design. My employer at the time was very kind and said, okay, yeah, you can be part-time now. That's that's fine. So that freed up this this bigger space and bigger scope. And I also had just completed this that long-running Stars Without Number game that ran into all these interesting challenges that we had to solve about why were these PCs together? What's the point of their crew? Like what are they trying to do as a team? How do we measure the growth of their team as opposed to the leveling up of the individual people? And there was all that simmering from, from playing that game. And I suddenly had a lot more free time. And so I think those two things together led to starting the playtest for Blades and then finding I had time and space to devote to it. And it grew to be the size it needed to be, I think. There are certainly one sheet versions of Blades in the Dark that are good for one shots that could have could have existed, I guess. But I think it naturally just through play, it grew itself to fill the space that was empty there that we were trying to fill. And I had the time to do it. So it worked out. And then again, fortunately, towards the end of the initial playtesting process, I was able to devote full time to that project. And that again, like let, let it be a bigger thing, a bigger book, more art. Kickstarter was able to pay for a lot of stuff. And it it, it was just very iterative process. That's what I always say to new designers is to, to really, to not go in with tons of preconceived notions about what it's going to be, because you might have a wonderful idea for a project that you just can't do. It's not right. It doesn't fit into your life to make that thing, even though it's it's such a cool idea, you know, uh, that's great, but put it in your notebook and maybe you'll get to it. Eventually. It's okay to start small and let, let the work Inform you uh, of what it needs to be, and not necessarily start out from a place of grand, huge scope.
0: No, I and I feel like that comes back to that curiosity that we talked about, right? Of uh, the sort of openness to figuring out, like you know, if you have an idea, don't become too attached to the end. You know, the beginning, middle, and end of that idea that applies at the table too. What a lovely theme! <laughs>
1: that is a hundred percent true, and that is that's what the initial playtest for Blades was like. It was. It was an act of discovery. It felt like we were mining it out of the ground, kind of like it. There's a there's a bit sticking out over here. Like, oh, what is this? And we ch- kept chipping away at it and s- discovering the piece that was buried there. But it was a collaborative thing. Like, I I had this idea of what I want to do and the the obvious problems that need to be solved, and the way to do that was by playing, uh, not just by me sitting in a room trying to think real hard about how to solve them. Playing the game was how to get to it and make that discovery together as a group. That really worked, worked well. And then that happened again after the Kickstarter. Um, That version of the game was very different than the one we have now. It went back into another phase, a, a very public phase of conversation with the community back and forth and all of them playing it and having that same process happen again, but a little more visibly everyone could see the many, many iterations, tiny little steps, you know, each, each iteration of that quick start was small. But if you go back to the first one, now it's hilarious how different the game is. Um, all those little tiny footsteps led to, to where it is.
0: Right. Which is, a I I feel like an educational kind of document in itself just to see like, okay, you don't have to write the whole thing in your first draft.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's someone out there for whom that is the best approach. I haven't met them, but that's probably true. But nevertheless, I I always warn people away from that idea of staring at your doc. To me, that's kind of death for game designers. I think make your character sheets, write some notes in your notebook and go to your table and play. I think that's where the, that's where your workshop is that the tape, that game table is your workshop and the the document phase is a separate process later when you need to write the thing. But the design work is the, it's happening with other people in play.
0: How, how do people get over that? You know, how, how do you talk people through that instinct to protect the idea until it's like, you know, quote unquote, good enough to be play tested till it's ready?
1: That's a that's a tough thing because it I think it requires vulnerability. And I, I think there's kind of a, There's two parts to that, at least. One is everyone's at a different place in terms of vulnerability. There's no one size fits all there. There's no, oh, come on, just do it. Don't be afraid. Like that's not the right approach. Um, Everyone has different emotional and mental needs and stresses and everything. We can't expect everyone to follow a, a rote system or something like that in terms of, especially in terms of being vulnerable creatively. But I will say that I think there is a it is a bit of a muscle you can work out that there is a, a process of doing it and getting feedback or having it fall flat or whatever. And sure, the first times are can be hard to deal with. But there is a process of sort of exposure to that, uh, that over time, you know, it's easier for it to roll off your back. And um, I think there's a reason why a lot of people who make RPGs have worked in the creative field, professional field, because you, you get used to it, you get used to feedback and client who doesn't like the project or cancels it or whatever. And at first that's super annoying or frustrating or, or even like, uh, emotionally traumatic. Cause you, my work, they didn't like my beautiful work. And I, I say that not to mock that reaction, but like it's a legit feeling, but over time you kind of like get used to it. So one side of that coin I think is to be sensitive to where you are. Don't jump into things that are going to be super traumatic for you dial it in slowly, but also know that you'll get better at that f- aspect of it and the other side of the coin though I think is the other like the people that are giving this feedback and the people that are playing your stuff and the the group your 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 safe, loving local group of gamers they need to be there too like it's it's a it takes both sides of that if I'm fine with being vulnerable and I feel like I've totally leveled that up, but my group is just completely snarky and sarcastic and unhelpful or way too generous and oh no we love it it's great yeah no this is perfect like and they're not really giving feedback or whatever like it's not enough for for me as the creator to just have all my ducks in a row like i need it, it needs both things and cultivating that group I've, is another bit of advice that i often give because i think if you're a game designer and you don't have that you don't have that group of of valued fellow players that you can take stuff to and that are interested in your work and, or whatever, it, it's like your workshop is missing its tools. Kind of, you have a threadbare workshop. Uh, you can still make games. Um, it's not that you can't under those conditions. You're just, it's so much harder. So yeah, cul- cult- cultivating a really good group, particularly now it doesn't have to be face to face. So your options are way bigger <laughs> than they used to be. And you can just quietly do that off in little, your little corner somewhere before it becomes a public thing but it's, yeah, it's, it's both. You need, you need your own kind of fortitude and confidence in your work. Um, at least just enough to that, that fits the group you're with. Like the more you trust them, the less you need on your end. Right. So it's, it's a balance. And in that's kind of where it ends. Like the next steps from there are you know, make friends, meet people, you know, like, how do you do that? Uh, That's, uh, that's outside the scope of our, of our game design discussion.
0: Slide missing.
1: Uh, (laughs) We can talk about that too, but I I am not an expert in that game design. Sure. But, but that's, that's part of our hobby, right? Like,
0: yeah. I mean, we play with other people. We talk to other people. Yeah.
1: Making friends, making connections with other human beings is, is part, is a thing you do at the game table. So it's a good skill to have anyway. As a gamer i mean it's obviously a good skill in life but uh, (laughs) (laughs) as a gamer and a game designer social skills are super powerful uh so
0: um well gosh john thank you so much for sharing all of this and for coming on the show if my listeners want to keep up with um your projects and what you're up to what is the best way for them to do that
1: twitter's probably the best way john underscore harper on twitter i have a website uh, with all my free mini games and stuff. I don't update it much anymore now that I'm working on this other thing. But one designcom is that is that site if you want to go download Lady Blackbird or, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, you can always reach out to me on Twitter and follow what I'm doing there. And that's my main my main channel.
0: Cool. Well, this is great. I'm so glad I was able to have you on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I love this show. And it's a really it's an honor to be
0: on. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet. Thanks again to John for joining us, and as always, thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on today's show, you can email me, that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me, that's at backstorycast, or my personal handle, that's at muscularpikachu. Backstory is part of the One Shot Podcast Network you can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like Warda. Warda is an original fantasy actual play podcast created by Ali Grower and Drew Mershieski. It's one part Game of Thrones, two parts Downton Abbey, served on the rocks with a twist of Agatha Christie. Discover magic, mystery, and more than a little socio-political commentary along the way. This city holds thousands of stories. What will yours be? Music for Backstory is provided by Uchiko. The track is called "Thinking of You, and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash U-J-I-C-O. Talk to you later, friends.